So I was a host of a television show that was a nature show, and we were in Vancouver, British Columbia, shooting in a place called the Seymour Demonstration Forest, which was, in fact, a temperate rainforest. You get about 100 yards in, and you lose all sense of the four cardinal directions. So in between takes, I decided to take a little bit of a wander out into that forest, and sure enough, within a couple of minutes, I was lost, completely, utterly lost. Fortunately, it was a very quiet day. No wind, no rain. I listened carefully and finally could hear the hum of the generator where our chute was, and I just followed that hum back to the chute. I got back just in time to be called up for the next shot, it was a little scary being lost. None of us like being lost. David Wagner teaches at the University of Washington, and he studies indigenous people who live in that same rainforest and how they teach their young people to navigate if they become lost. Wagner turned it into a poem, and the poem goes like this. When you're lost in the forest, stand still. When you're lost in the forest, stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. You must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask its permission to know it and be known by it. Listen, the forest breathes, it whispers, I have made this place around you. If you leave, you may return to here. No two trees are the same to a raven. No two branches are the same to a wren. If what a tree or a branch does is lost on you, well, now then you are surely lost. What do you do when you're lost in the forest? Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. John was lost, profoundly lost. He was the only child of the aged priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth who had received a visitation from the angel Gabriel late in life telling them that they would have a son. Elizabeth welcomed the news. Zechariah refused to listen to it or believe it. And then Elizabeth found out that her cousin Mary had also had a visitation from the same angel. And the two of them got together to celebrate the coming births of their sons. And then came the day that John was born. Now, tradition would have it that he would be named Zechariah after his father. But Zechariah, knowing that he'd ignored the angel and all, recognized that probably wasn't a good idea, and so his name should be John. And he grew up as the cousin of Jesus. No doubt played a lot together as children. Can you imagine just how frustrating it would be to have Jesus as your cousin? You know, you're out playing in the backyard and you break a dish and your mother comes out and says, okay, boys, who broke the dish? You say, Jesus did, Mom. Jesus broke the dish. Jesus, did you break the dish? No, it wasn't me. It was John. No, I swear, Mom, I swear it was Jesus. Jesus broke the dish. Now, John, you and I both know Jesus doesn't lie. <laughs> Busted. I mean, there'd be years of therapy trying to deal with Jesus having been your cousin, right? So then comes the day that Jesus comes to John in their young adult life and says, John, to fulfill all righteousness, I want you to baptize me. And John's like, oh, that's a good one, Jesus. I like that, yeah. No, I'm serious. <laughs> to fulfill all righteousness, I want you to baptize me. 
And so John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River and God spoke up audibly, I think sounding a lot like Dame Judy Dench, I'm pretty sure. And God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And not only that, but a figure like a dove descended down from heaven to where Jesus stood. Now, if John ever had any doubt in his mind about who Jesus was, that doubt was dispelled now. He had just heard God speak, saw a figure like a dove come down from heaven to where Jesus stood, and he went out and told the people, the Messiah is at hand. One has come who is so great I'm not even worthy to touch his shoes. But his enthusiasm got him in trouble. Herod was the ruler of the land, and Herod had decided he liked his brother's wife much better than he liked his own wife. So he decided to divorce his wife, seduce his brother's wife away from his brother, marry her, and live happily ever after. Except John spoke up and said, yeah, where we come from, that's not okay. Well, that was just as good as slamming the old cell door shut in John's face. Herod sent his soldiers out with a single request. Bring John back alive. He knew John was popular with the people, and if he were to kill him, there might be a political uprising against him, so instead he thought, now nah, we'll just shut him off in prison and the people will forget about him. And sitting in prison, doubts started to come into John's mind. Like most other people of Israel, John thought the Messiah would be a political king, that he would defeat the Romans, bring independence back to Israel, and then give the people free food. And reports start coming over the prison grapevine. Jesus hanging out with the poorest of the poor, the lowest of the low, the down and the outcast. Jesus doing nothing to create an army to defeat the powers that be. And John started thinking, could it be he's not the Messiah? Could it be I've been preparing the way for an ordinary man? John is filled with doubts and it's a good thing because doubting everything is the beginning of wisdom. That's right. Doubting everything is the beginning of wisdom. But it never feels that way. It always feels like death. John was lost, profoundly lost. Was he the Messiah? Was he not? John's lost, but it's okay because lost, well, lost is a place too. And it's kind of hard to get through life without spending some time in the place called lost. There are things you can learn in the place called lost you can't learn any other way. A wisdom you can gain in that place called lost you cannot gain in any other way. Now, there are people in life who do not get lost. They're the people who never go anywhere. <laughs> but if, in fact, you dare to take a risk in life and to step out courageously, you're going to get lost. The question isn't whether you'll get lost or not. It's how long and how deeply you'll get lost. We all get lost. Joseph Campbell talked about it as the hero's journey. Coming to every culture, every language group, every ethnicity, every age, Always the same elements. There's an ordinary citizen called onto an extraordinary journey onto the road of trials. And initially, the person rejects that call because, hey, it's the road of trials. Not many of us willing to say, sure, let's just spend today on the road of trials. But then a spiritual guide comes into the person's life, a Yoda, if you will, 
that gives them the courage to accept that call, and then sure enough, they find themselves on the road of trials. And then it gets worse. They find themselves in a deep, dark, black cave. It's what Dante was talking about at the beginning of the Commedia, the Divine Comedy, when he said, in the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. Yep, been there. It's what John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. And you must spend time in that dark night of the soul until finally, finally you see the light at the end of the tunnel and this time, thank goodness, it's not an oncoming train. And so now you're back into the ordinary road of trials, which now feels like nothing after what you've been through. And then eventually you get to the prize of great price, to the holy grail. But even then, your journey is not over because you have to take that prize and bring it back and give it to those from whom you have departed as an offering. Only then are you free to move on. Now here's the thing. All of us have been called onto the hero's journey. Every last one of us. The question is not whether you're called onto the hero's journey or not. The question is whether or not you answer the call. I knew from the time I was three or four years of age I was transgender. In my naivete, I thought I got to choose. I thought a gender fairy would arrive and say, okay, what's it going to be? But alas, no gender fairy arrives, so I just live my life. I didn't hate being a boy, I just knew I wasn't one. Went to college, got married, had kids, built a career. But the call toward authenticity has all the subtlety of a smoke alarm. And eventually decisions have to be made. And so I came out as transgender and promptly lost every single one of my jobs. I had never had a bad review. And I lost every one of my jobs. In 29 states, you cannot be fired, for, or in 21 states, you cannot be fired for being transgender. But in all 50, you can be fired if you're transgender and you work for a religious corporation. This is good to know. It's not easy being a transgender woman. People often ask me, do you feel 100% like a woman? And I say, well, first of all, if you've talked to one transgender person, you've talked to exactly one transgender person. I'm not going to answer for anybody else. I feel 100% like a transgender woman. There are things a cisgender woman knows that I will never know. That said, I'm learning a lot about what it means to be a female, and I'm learning a lot about my former gender. And I'm here to tell you the differences are massive. We'll start with the little things, like the pockets on women's jeans. <laughs> Can someone explain this to me? Or the size of women's clothing, I figured it out, the numbers mean nothing. So my former wife, with whom I'm still in practice as a therapist, we. She's five foot three with a lot of curves, and we'll go to the store together. She'll try on 20 pairs of jeans. None of them will fit. I, on the other hand, can go on to any online retailer in the world, buy a pair of size 10 tall jeans, and they will fit perfectly. Now, there's something wrong with that. When we're making women's jeans for six foot two inch tall, skinny men, women without curves, or let's just be really honest about it, we're making women's jeans for tall, skinny men. Something's wrong with that. 
That tells you just how patriarchal our culture is. There's no way a well-educated white male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor. There's no way he can understand it because it's all he's ever known and all he ever will know. Conversely, there's no way a female can understand the full import of that because being a female is all she's ever known. Now, she might have an inkling that she's working twice as hard for two-thirds as much, but she has no idea how much harder it is for her than it is for the guy in the Brooks Brothers jacket in the office across the hall. I know. I was that guy. The average woman in America earns between 53 and 79 cents on the dollar of what the average man works, earns. 6.6% of Fortune 500 CEOs are female. 4.8% of Silicon Valley CEOs are female. 3% of venture capital goes to female-owned firms. The myth is that women don't get raises because they don't ask for them. The truth is that women ask for raises every bit as often as men do. They just don't get them. Now, I'd heard all those statistics before, but they never really registered with me. But, oh, they register with me now. Because now I am living those statistics. I've built a new life. But it's been way, way harder than it was before when everything was just handed to me. In my new life, I've spent so much time lost. John is lost. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he not? He sends his followers to Jesus with a single question. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus gives him a riddle for an answer. Go tell John the things you see me do and hear me say. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the poor have the gospel preached to them. John, when he gets this answer, is thinking, you know, I asked a simple yes or no question. There's not a lot to do in prison. And scripture was an oral tradition, and so no doubt he started thinking about these answers that Jesus had given him, and maybe he recognized that Jesus was sending him back to scripture, that those were all quotes from the Hebrew scriptures. Maybe not, we don't know. But the story does go on. Herod's new wife's daughter does a dance in front of a big party. And she does such a good job that Herod says, I will give you anything that you want. She said, great, I'll take the head of John the Baptist on a platter for my mother. And that's what she got. Not a real happy ending. But then the faith that looks for happy endings probably isn't the best kind of faith anyway. But to me, the most fascinating part of this story is what happens right after John's disciples have asked Jesus their question. Jesus has answered the question, sends them on their way, turns back to the crowd, and I can imagine what Jesus might have said. He might have turned back to the crowd and said, wow, can you believe that? I grew up with that guy. I mean, we both heard God speak. We saw a figure like a dove come down from heaven. Now he's doubting who I am. You think you know somebody. Is that what Jesus said? No. It's one single, single phrase, he said, and it changes everything. He said, there is no man born of woman any greater than John. Well, how about that? Apparently, Jesus understood that lost is a place too. And Jesus was not particularly bothered by the fact that John was living in the place called Lost because Jesus was far more concerned about whether or not he was on the journey. And if he was on the journey, of course he was going to get lost. 
because you're always going to get lost if you dare to believe that the authentic life is worth living. I was lost, completely lost. I'd lost every one of my jobs. I was the CEO of one of the nation's largest organizations that starts new churches that grow very fast. I was the editor-at-large of a national magazine. I had preached at one point or another in three of the ten largest churches in the United States. I was on the preaching team of two different megachurches, and all of it was gone within seven days. I lost a million dollars of pension money, and I was lost. Thousands of friends gone overnight. I thought I would never be back in the church again, but then one pastor from one church in Denver invited me to preach, and just like that, I was on their preaching team, which then caused another church in Denver, a church of a couple thousand, Denver Community Church, to invite me to preach at their church, and I joined their preaching team. And then I came back and preached at my son's church in Brooklyn, Forefront Church, where he is a pastor. And then those three churches joined together to start a new church in Boulder County, Colorado, where I now am one of the pastors. And then somebody from NPR saw all of this, and suddenly I was doing one TED Talk, and then a second TED Talk with my son, and then a third TED Talk, and then just last week a fourth TED Talk. And now they're making a feature film about my life in Hollywood, and I'm thinking, what? <laughs> But here's the thing, it might not have turned out that way. It doesn't for most people. I brought a lot of my privilege with me when I transitioned, I know that. And that privilege remains with me. But if I did not have any of these marvelous things happen, would I have transitioned anyway? Of course I would. Because the call toward authenticity is sacred and holy and for the greater good. When I was going through my worst time of being lost, I was sustained by the first poem I ever memorized. It's David White's poem, Sweet Darkness, and it goes like this. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark, where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you will not be beyond love. The dark will be your home tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing, you must learn one thing, you must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. You must give up all other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn that anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Will you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for creating us as free beings who can get lost. Well, of course we never enjoy it, but we're never lost to you. You always know where we are. And if we're willing to trust that, we can discover lost as a place too. And we can spend the time there that we need to gain the wisdom we need because we know that you are always there loving us where we are, as we are. For that, we will be eternally grateful.